In days long ago, when birds and flowers and trees could talk, in a country far over the sea, there was a beautiful clear pool formed by a natural spring, feeding a stream that flowed down a valley. It was in an opening in the forest, and the little sunbeams that crept between the leaves falling upon it made it shine and sparkle like silver. You would have thought the wind was playing a polka among the trees, so cheerfully did the spring dance and bubble over the rocks, while it was sending up little showers of spray that made tiny rainbows. But between the banks of the stream, farther down, it was as quiet as a sleeping child, and the ferns bent over and bathed themselves in it, and the cool green moss crept down to the water's edge. Mountain goats that wandered through the forest had never been there to drink. Even the wind was tenderly careful not to ruffle it, and the leaves that had shaded it all summer long laid themselves noiselessly on either side when their turn came to fall. But they never touched its mirror surface. One day, a young man named Narcissus, who had been hunting in the forest, lost sight of his companions and while looking for them, chanced to see the spring water flashing beneath a stray sunbeam. He immediately turned toward it, much delighted, for he was so hot and thirsty. As he drew nearer and heard the splash of the falling water and saw its crystal clearness, he thought he had never seen a place so beautiful, and he hastened to cool his face and parched lips. But as he knelt on the mossy bank and bent over the pool, he saw his own image as in a glass. He thought it must be some lovely water spirit that lived within the spring, and in gazing at it he forgot to drink. The sparkling eyes, the curling locks, the blushing rounded cheeks, and the parted lips filled him with admiration, and he fell in love with that image of himself, but he didn't know that it was his own image. The longer he looked, the more beautiful it became to him, and he longed to embrace it. But as he dipped his arms into the water and touched it with his lips, the lovely face disappeared, as though his owner had been frightened. Narcissus started to panic that he might never see it again, and he looked around in vain to find where it had gone. Imagine his delight to see it appearing again as the surface of the water became smooth. It gave him back glance for glance and smile for smile. But although the lips moved as if they were speaking, there was only silence. He begged the beautiful creature to come out of the pool and live with him. You are the most beautiful being my eyes have ever looked upon, he said, and I love you with all my heart. You shall have all that is mine, and I will forever be your faithful friend, if only you will come with me. The image smiled and seemed to stretch out its arms to him, but still was dumb. This only made him desire all the more to hear it speak, and he pleaded for a reply until, saddened by continued disappointment, his tears fell upon the water and disturbed it. This made the face look wrinkled. He thought it was going to leave him and exclaimed, Stay, beautiful being, and let me just look at you if I may not touch you. And so he hung over the brink of the pool, forgetting his food and rest, but not losing sight for an instant of the lovely face. 
As daylight faded away and the moonbeams crept down into the little glade to bear him company, he still kept his faithful watch, and the morning sun found him where it had said goodnight to him the evening before. Day after day and night after night he stayed there, staring and grieving. He grew thin and pale and weak, until worn out with love and longing and disappointment, he pined away and died. When his friends found the poor dead Narcissus, they were filled with sorrow, and they sadly prepared a funeral pile, for it was the custom in those days to burn the dead. Strangely, when they returned to take away the body, it could not be found. However, before their astonished eyes, a little flower rose from the water's edge, just where their friend had died. So they named the flower in memory of him, and it has been called Narcissus until this very day. Many gods and goddesses were worshipped by the ancient Greeks and Romans. But besides these, they also believed in demigods, so-called because according to tradition, their parentage was half divine and half human. These beings were generally distinguished for beauty, strength, valor, or other noble qualities. The stories of their adventures told by ancient writers are as interesting as fairy tales and are so often represented in painting and sculpture and mentioned in books that everyone should know something about them. Perseus, one of these demigods, was the son of Jupiter, the highest of the gods, and of Danae, a mortal woman. It had been prophesied to Danae's father, Acrisius, king of Argos, that a grandson would take from him both his throne and life and he therefore locked his daughter Danae and her child in a wooden box and had them thrown into the sea. The box was caught in the net of a fisherman of the Isle of Seraphos, and he put Danae and Perseus safely on shore. The king of the island, whose name was Polydectes, afterward took Danae under his special care and brought up her son as if he had been his own. When Perseus had grown to be a young man, the king urged him to go in search of adventures and set him the task of bringing him the head of the terrible Gorgon named Medusa. Perseus felt obliged to make this expedition and decided to ask for aid from the gods. In answer to his prayers, Mercury and Minerva, the patrons of adventurers, led him to the home of the Grey the women monsters so-called because they had been born with grey hair. Perseus compelled them to show him to the nymphs who protected the helmet of Hades, which rendered its wearer invisible. They introduced Perseus to the nymphs, who at once gave him a helmet, winged shoes, and a pouch, which he needed for his task. Then Mercury gave him the harper, or curved knife, and Minerva offered her polished shield and showed him how to use it in approaching the Gorgons so that he would not be turned into stone at the sight of them. 
Perseus donned his shoes and helmet and flew until he reached the home of the Gorgons. These were three hideous daughters of Phorcus and sisters of the Grey. Only one of them, Medusa, was mortal. Perseus found the monsters asleep. They were covered with dragon scales and had writhing serpents instead of hair. And besides these charms, they had huge tusks like those of a boar, brazen hands and golden wings. Whoever looked on them was immediately turned to stone. But Perseus knew this and only looked at their reflection in his shield. Having discovered Medusa without harm to himself, he cut off her head with his curved knife. Perseus dropped the head of Medusa into the pouch slung over his shoulder and went quickly on his way. When Medusa's sisters awoke, they tried to pursue the young demigod, but the helmet made him invisible so they could not find him. After some time, he landed in the realm of King Atlas, who was a giant and owned a grove of trees that bore golden fruit. They were guarded by a terrible dragon. The king, fearful of losing his golden treasure, denied Perseus food and shelter in his palace. Perseus became enraged and, taking the head of Medusa from his pouch, held it towards the huge king, who was suddenly turned to stone. His hair and beard changed to forest, his shoulders, hands and bones became rocks, and his head grew up into a lofty mountain peak. Mount Atlas in Africa was believed by the ancients to be the mountain into which the giant was transformed. Perseus then rose into the air again, continued on his journey, and came to Ethiopia, where he found a woman chained to a rock that jutted out into the sea. He was so enchanted with her loveliness that he almost forgot to poise himself in the air with his wings. At last, taking off his helmet so that he could be seen, he said, You are very beautiful. Where are you from? What is your name? And why are you chained? The weeping woman blushed at the sight of the handsome stranger and replied, I am Andromeda, daughter of Cepheus, king of this country. My mother boasted to the nymphs, daughters of Nereus, that she was far more beautiful than they. This aroused their anger and they persuaded Neptune, their friend, to make the sea overflow our shores and send a monster to destroy us. Then an oracle proclaimed that we would be rid of these evils if I, the queen's daughter, would be given to the monster. The people forced my parents to make the sacrifice and I was chained to this rock. As she ceased speaking, the waves surged and boiled and a fearful monster rose to the surface. The princess shrieked in terror just as her parents came to see her, but they could do nothing but weep and moan. Then Perseus told them who he was and boldly proposed to rescue Andromeda if they would promise to give her to him as his wife. The king and queen, eager to save Andromeda, at once agreed to this and said they would give him not only their daughter, but also their own kingdom as her dowry. Meanwhile, the monster had come within a stone's throw of the shore. So Perseus flew up into the air, put on his helmet, attacked the creature and killed it after a fierce struggle. He then landed ashore and rescued Andromeda, who greeted him with words of thanks and looks of love. He restored her to the arms of her delighted parents and entered their palace a happy bridegroom. 
Soon the wedding festivities began, and there was a large celebration. The banquet was not yet over, however, when a sudden commotion occurred in the court of the palace. It was caused by Phineas, brother of Cepheus, who had been betrothed to his niece Andromeda, but had failed her in her hour of need. He now made an appearance with several followers and clamoured for his bride. But Cepheus stood and cried, Brother, are you mad? You lost your bride when she was condemned to death in front of your face. Why didn't you try to win her back then? Leave her to Perseus who fought for her and saved her. Phineas held his peace, but cast furious looks both at his brother and at Perseus, as if hesitating which to strike first. Finally, with all his might, he threw a spear at Perseus, but missed the mark. This was the signal for a battle between the guests and servants of Cepheus and Phineas and his followers. The latter were the more numerous, and soon Perseus was quite surrounded by enemies. He fought valiantly, however, striking down his opponents one after another, until he saw that he could not hold out to the end against such odds. Then he made up his mind to use his last but surest means of defence, and yelled for his friends to turn away their faces. He pulled the head of Medusa from the pouch and held it toward his nearest adversary. You can't frighten me with your miracles, cried the man. But in the very act of lifting his spear, he grew stiff and motionless as a statue. All his followers suffered the same fate, till at last Phineas realised his predicament. All about him he saw nothing but stone images in every conceivable posture. He called despairingly upon his friends and touched those near him, but all were silent, cold and stony. Then fear and sorrow seized him and his threats changed to prayers. Spare me, spare my life, he cried to Perseus, and bride and kingdom shall be yours. But Perseus was not to be moved to mercy, for his friends had been killed before his very eyes. So Phineas shared the doom of his followers and was turned to stone. After these events, Perseus and Andromeda were married, and together they journeyed to Seraphos, where they heard that the king had been ill-treating Danae. When the tyrant assembled his court to see how Perseus had done his task, the son avenged his mother's wrongs by petrifying everyone, king, courtiers and all. Then he gave back to the nymphs the helmet, shoes and pouch they had lent to him, returned the knife to Mercury and presented Minerva with Medusa's head, which ever after she mounted on her shield. With his mother and his wife, Perseus then sought his timid grandfather Cretius, and found him not in his own realm of Argos, but at Larissa, the city of King Teutamius, watching some public games. Perseus decided to compete in the games himself, and so managed to fulfil the old prophecy, and accidentally killed his grandfather by an unlucky throw of the discus. Perseus, who deeply mourned his grandfather's death, soon exchanged the kingdom of Argos for Tyrans, and there founded the city of Mycenae. He lived happily with his wife and ruled his kingdom long and wisely. When Perseus chopped off the head of the terrible Gorgon Medusa, 
It is said there sprang from her body a winged horse. This was the strange and beautiful animal now known in mythology as Pegasus, and the ancient poets and fable writers told many stories concerning him. Hardly was the fiery creature born when he flew up into the heavens and there became the horse of Jupiter, for whom he carried thunder and lightning. In course of time, however, Pegasus had a less powerful rider. A young man named Hipponus happened to kill Belarus, a Corinthian, and because of this act was named Bellerophon. To save his life, he took refuge at the court of a king named Prytus. But here also Bellerophon got into trouble, and Prytus sent him to Iabates, king of Lycia, with private orders to have the young man killed at the first opportunity. To accomplish this, Iobates sent Bellerophon to kill the dreadful fire-breathing monster Chimera, firmly believing he would never return alive. There was a chance, too, that both might die, and thus Iobates would gain the love of his people, as well as the friendship of King Prytus, for Chimera had killed great numbers of the Lycians. The forepart of Chimera's body was like a lion, the hind part like a dragon, and the rest like a goat. But although the monster was so horrid and terrible, Bellerophon seems to have taken the matter very comfortably. For we hear of his falling asleep in the temple of the goddess Minerva, where he had gone to talk the fight over with one of the priests. This nap proved a piece of good luck, for the goddess was kind enough to appear to him in a dream and tell him that in order to kill Chimera, he must manage to tame and ride Pegasus and that he would find the horse at the Pyrene spring, where Pegasus loved to drink. This famous spring of pure water supplied a great part of the town of Corinth. To aid Bellerophon in conquering the horse, Minerva gave him a golden bridle. When he awoke, Bellerophon found this bridle by his side, and as it proved his dream to be true so far, he started for the Pyrene spring and lay in wait there. After a long time, the man heard a loud fluttering of wings, and looking up, he saw the wonderful horse hovering in the air. As Bellerophon had hidden himself very carefully, Pegasus, not seeing him, flew gracefully down to the spring, drank the water, and quietly stretched himself out and fell asleep. Then Bellerophon crept up softly and suddenly leapt upon the creature's back. The shock awoke the winged horse, who never till then had felt the human touch. He sprang up in wild alarm and rose with quick wings high into the air, doing his utmost to shake off his rider. But Bellerophon kept his seat, swung the golden bridle skillfully over his steed's head, and slipped the bit into his mouth. After that, Pegasus submitted, and the young man could make him fly just as he wished. Riding on his winged horse, Bellerophon boldly attacked and killed Chimera, to the great joy of the Lycians, although Iobates and Prytus were annoyed Bellerophon escaped. The young man was so grateful to Pegasus that he would have set him free, but the noble creature had learned to love his brave master and would not leave him. Even when Bellerophon wanted to go into the heavens, Pegasus tried to fly up there with him on his back, but the gods threw Bellerophon down to earth for trying to intrude upon them uninvited. In later times, Pegasus was said to have been also the horse of the Muses, 
the nine goddesses who presided over the different kinds of poetry and over the arts and sciences. Once these nine had a singing match with the nine daughters of Pieris on Mount Helicon in Pieria. When the daughters of Pieris sang, all nature became dark. But when the tuneful nine broke forth into song, the heavens, the sea, and all the rivers stood still to listen, and Mount Helicon itself rose heavenward with delight until Pegasus stopped it by a kick from his hoof. Out from the hoofprint of this kick bubbled up the fountain called Hippocrene, whose waters were said to bring inspiration to all who drank of them. The defeated nine were changed into birds. Nobody has told us the final fate of the beautiful Pegasus, but some ancient writers hint that he returned into the heavens and became the horse of Aurora, the goddess of the morning. Certainly it is pleasant to think so, and perhaps it is in memory of this event that astronomers have given his name to a group of stars. This is a brief story of Hercules. Foremost among the demigods was Hercules, the son of Jupiter and Alcmene. Juno, the queen of heaven, was hostile to Hercules and began war against him from his birth. He first showed proof of his divine origin by strangling two serpents which Juno had sent to his cradle when he was about eight months old. An account of this is given in a beautiful poem of Pindar. Hercules grew up in Thebes, where he had the best teachers. Here he excelled in every feat of strength, but made little progress in the arts. He killed his master for reproving him, and as a punishment was sent to Mount Scytheron to mind the flocks. Here he remained until about 18 years of age. During this period he met two beautiful women, Arete, Virtue, and Kakia, Vice. Kakia told him if he would follow her, she would give him great riches, ease, and pleasure. Arete, whom he liked better, told him that if he accepted her, he must expect a life of hardship and toil, and continual fights against evil. After thinking over the two promises, Hercules, remembering the precepts of his tutors, decided to follow Arete. This is known as the choice of Hercules. Juno, still intent upon her war against Hercules, now obtained from Jupiter a decree that Hercules should serve his cousin Eurystheus, king of Argos, for a certain time. Eurystheus, whom he was sentenced to serve, told him that to be free he must perform twelve great labours, and the following is a short account of how he accomplished them. Labour 1 First he was ordered to slay the Nemean lion, a monstrous beast that roamed the forests of Nemea, carrying off cattle, women and children, and killing everything that came near him. The lion's skin was so thick that no arrows nor weapons could pierce it, and everyone said that Hercules would never return alive. Hercules could not injure him with his club nor his arrows, but finally drove him into a cave where he grappled him with his arms and strangled him to death, just like he had the serpents. He afterward used the lion's skin for his own shield 
and the head for a helmet. Labor 2. Next, he was commanded to kill the Lernian Hydra, a great nine-headed water serpent that was ravaging all the country around, killing both men and beasts. In this adventure, he was accompanied by his nephew, Aeolus, who, as on many other occasions, was his faithful friend. Hercules advanced fearlessly and with his sword struck off one of the heads. To his amazement, two more immediately came out in its place. They then set fire to the neighbouring forests and with the great firebrands seared the throats of the serpent until finally no more heads grew out. He then dipped his arrows in the poison of the serpent so that any wounds inflicted with them would be fatal. Labour 3 he was then ordered to capture alive the Arcadian stag or hind of Serenia, an animal sacred to Arcadian Artemis. This stag had golden horns and hoofs of brass, a symbol of never-tiring swiftness. He shot across the hills so fast as hardly to be seen, and for nearly a year Hercules was kept in hopeless pursuit. Finally, on the banks of the Laden, he succeeded in tiring him out and brought him back to Mycenae a captive. Labour 4 The fourth task appointed was to capture the Erymanthian boar, a horrible animal that inhabited the mountain district of Eurymanthus, from which it laid waste the cornfields. Hercules drove the boar to the snow-covered summit of a mountain, and captured him alive as Eurystheus had commanded. It was while performing this labour that Hercules killed the centaurs, among them accidentally his beloved tutor Chiron, for whom he sincerely mourned. When Hercules brought the great boar home on his back, Eurystheus was so frightened that he went and hid himself in a vessel. This comic scene you may find pictured upon some of the Greek vases. Labour 5 Augeus, the king of Elis, had a herd of 3,000 cattle, and the fifth task set for Hercules was cleaning the stables, which had not been cleaned for 30 years. The river Alpheus flowed by, and Hercules' method was to turn the river so that it would flow through the stables. When he had accomplished this, he again changed the banks of the stream. The fable says that he did it all in one day. Labour 6 the district around Lake Stymphales in Arcadia was inhabited by a flock of voracious birds which fed upon human flesh, and Hercules was now dispatched to slay them. These birds had claws, beaks, and even wings of brass, and were able to shoot out their feathers like arrows. Hercules slew most of these with his poisoned arrows, which were just what he needed for this purpose. Some flew away and never returned. Labour 7 In the life of Minos, king of Crete, we read that Neptune once sent up a bull out of the sea for Minos to sacrifice. But when Minos saw the bull, he was so struck with its beauty and sleekness that he kept it for his own, substituting another for the sacrifice. This so angered Neptune that he caused the bull to go mad, and the next labour of Hercules was to capture this bull and bring him to Eurystheus. He was as successful in this as his previous labours. Labour 8 
Diomedes was king of a warlike tribe in Thrace, and possessed a drove of wild mares to whom he fed human beings. All strangers coming to his realm were seized and fed to the mares. These mares Hercules was to bind and bring alive to his master. He not only did this, but first killed Diomedes himself and fed him to the mares. Labour 9 The next labour was of a different kind. Admeti, the daughter of his master, expressed a wish to obtain the beautiful girdle of the Queen of the Amazons, a race of female warriors, and Hercules was told to go and get it. He had many adventures before reaching the Queen, but when he found her and told her the object of his visit, she seemed inclined to aid him. His old enemy Juno saw fit to interfere at this point, and assuming the guise of an Amazon, went among them and by spreading false rumours, finally incited them to attack him. He was obliged to fight them single-handed, but at last not only escaped to his ship in safety, but killed the queen whom he believed had been treacherous to him, and carried the precious girdle with him. Labour 10 Gerionese was a three-headed giant who inhabited the island of Erythea, where he had a herd of the finest cattle. To fetch these, Hercules had a long journey to go. He is supposed to have sailed to the island in a golden boat, which he got from Helios, the sun, by shooting at him with his arrows. On arriving at the island, he slew the giant and then recrossed the ocean with the cattle in his golden boat, and after many adventures delivered them to his master. Labour 11 The most difficult feat of all, though perhaps not the most dangerous, was bringing the golden apples of Hesperides. Worst of all, he did not know where to look for them. They had been given to Juno for a wedding present and were in the charge of the Hesperides, or nymphs of the West, assisted in their keeping by a dragon. Hercules had many adventures looking for the apples, but finally came to Mount Atlas in Africa. Here, Atlas, who was one of the titans who had warred against the gods, was condemned to hold up the heavens on his shoulders. He was the father of the Hesperides, and Hercules felt sure he could learn something from him. So he did, and Atlas said he would go and get the apples, while Hercules held up the heavens. The burden was transferred to Hercules' shoulders, but when Atlas came back with the apples, he did not like the idea of taking up the burden of the heavens again, and said he would go and deliver the apples himself. Hercules appeared to consent, and only asked Atlas to relieve him for a short time while he placed a cushion under his great weight. When Atlas complied, Hercules seized the apples and ran away with them, thus completing his labour. Labour 12 the last feat of all, and the one which put an end to his service to Eurystheus, was bringing the dog Cerberus from the lower world. It is generally reported that Hercules made his descent into the lower world, assisted by Hermes and Athene. There he had a number of adventures, in one of which he succeeded in liberating Theseus from the lower regions. Finally, he reached the presence of the lord of the region, who consented to his fighting Cerberus and taking him away if he could do so without using weapons. As in all the other labours he was successful, 
seizing the terrible beast with his hands and chaining him up until he was helpless. So ended the twelve set labors, and so he earned his freedom from the service of Eurystheus. When these great labors were completed, the life of Hercules on earth was not yet over, for he was destined to live many years and to perform other exploits, and his life was quite as interesting as before. His wise teacher Chiron the centaur had taught him ever to help the weak and to take their side against any who oppressed them. And for all his great strength he was often very gentle and full of pity for those who were bowed down by pain or sorrows. But he seemed still to have given way to violence at times, and once in a fit of madness he killed his friend Ephitus, for which he was condemned to spend three years as the slave of Queen Omphale. During this time a strange change came over him, and his brave and warlike spirit seemed to vanish. At times he wore the dress of a woman, spinning with the handmaidens of the queen. Yet at other times he went forth and accomplished daring feats. It was during this period that he discovered the body of Icarus and buried it, and joined the company of the Argonauts on their way to secure the Golden Fleece. After the servitude to Omphale was over, he sailed against Troy with eighteen ships, and was successful. He also made other expeditions, delivered Prometheus, subdued giants, and distinguished himself in many ways. Finally the hero went to Caledon, where he wooed and won Deianira, daughter of Aeneas. A long time he lived here, and people loved him for his kindly deeds. One day with his wife he journeyed to the banks of a river, where the centaur Nessus was the ferryman. Hercules forded the river, while the centaur carried Deianira across, and tried to flee away with her. At this Hercules shot him through with an arrow. The centaur, as he died, faintly besought Deianira to fill a shell with his blood, so that if she should ever be in danger of losing the love of Hercules, she could retain it by spreading it over a robe for Hercules to wear. Once becoming jealous of Hercules, his wife gave him an embroidered robe in which she had sprinkled the blood. When he had put it on, the poisoned blood spread through his body like devouring fire. The vengeance of the centaur was accomplished, for when he tried to throw off the robe, the poison acted more fiercely. When Deianira saw what she had done, she hanged herself, and Hercules in agony prepared to die. He ascended Mount Sita where he had built a funeral pile. He laid himself upon it, resting his head upon his club, and placing his lion's skin upon him. With a calm face he bade them apply the torch, and so came to his life's grandly mournful close. But the gods of heaven grieved to see their great champion's end, and allowed only the mortal part to die. From high Olympus came a bright cloud,